we have a lot of really good critical qualitative stories around students mm-hmm. and that that definitely shapes people's ideas of what what the problem is and then but also you know people at the policy level also want to see numbers and so having those skills is i think really important for our students but then teaching them how to think about like are we capturing the data the best ways are are we missing students by how we've designed our demographic variables and stuff like that and just not seeing things because they are essentially not existing in our data mm-hmm. um, and so that's where i really want students to think critically and ask good questions around like, what is the data that we want and how, how do we get it for what they need to do? Welcome to Health and Human Science Matters, a podcast by Colorado State University's College of Health and Human Sciences. I'm your co-host and digital media strategist, Avery Martin. And I'm Matt Hickey, Associate Dean for Research and Graduate Studies. In our college, we make it our mission to optimize human health and well-being through discovery and innovation. Don't just take our word for it. Each episode, we sit down with people who fulfill that mission, our college faculty and staff. And today, we're lucky to have a friend and colleague from the School of Education, Carrie Dockendorf. Very welcome. Thank you. We're delighted to have you and looking forward to getting to know you a little bit better. Thank you. Happy to be here. So, so we take two approaches. We want to know Carrie the person and Carrie the scholar. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we'll have some questions along both of those lines, but I think they'll blend because, of course, we, we are not split into two personalities, right. one that shows up at work and one that is uh-huh. sort of the rest of life. So we, we look forward to getting to know you a little bit better. Great. Our starting point is to ask you to talk about the kind of big questions and big problems, big challenges that you pursue as a scholar, just as a sort mm-hmm. of a backdrop for the rest of our conversation. Yeah, um, I think the big questions um, that my research address um, is really around um, how can we serve our students um, better on college campuses? Mm-hmm. Um, and the way I do that is through um, looking at gender and looking at ways we can better serve trans students on our campus. And so coming up with different ways and better ways to measure gender through survey research, um, allowing for more opportunity to identify within gender for students um, and people in general. A lot of your research is centered around the theory around queer quantification Mm -hmm. of data. Mm -hmm. So what exactly does that mean? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Um, I think for me, it means um, trying to find uh, within if we take queer theory, it's really one way that you can take up queer theory is to how do we push against um, binary limited categorical options or identity, um, Mm -hmm. knowing that people are complex and messy and so identity, um, trying to measure identity should also be complex and messy. And from there, um, taking, you know, instead of just a binary man or woman option of a gender question in a survey, um, we can ask that in a more expansive way um, mm. and allow for a sort of fluidity and um, nuance within that gender um, designation. Awesome. You know, I, I want to run with this because I think it's such an important point, the, the complexity of people and the messiness mm-hmm. of, of people and, and communities. If we're honest with one another, it can be that way mm-hmm. as well. Right. It, there can be some illusions for our listeners when they think about research that it, that it fits neatly into sort of little boxes. And, <laughs> you know, we don't have much of measurement error, whatever kind of measurements we're making, whether that be sort of an analytical tool that somebody spends, you know, half a million dollars on, mm-hmm. right? Or we're, we're trying to interact with a person face-to-face as opposed to an instrument, right? The the messiness is there in both cases, Mm -hmm. right? And so 
part of the challenge to, to research involving people, individuals, central to this idea of the College of Health and Human yeah. Sciences, <laughs> is that um, cookie cutters rarely work well when we're talking about people, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. We have to allow the, you know, we, we use the term messiness, but I think there's actually a, a great interest in not everybody being the same. I, yeah. I've often yeah. thought if everybody I bumped into was me, it would be a terribly boring world, right? So <laughs> right. you want to you wanna meet people who haven't walked the same path you have, don't have the same perspective on the world that you mm -hmm. have, because that's part of how we sort of expand our vision. So absolutely, it really fits nicely with our, our both our college mission and the land grant mission as well. So, yeah, absolutely. So, so we want to reel back the tape of your life just a few years. Okay. Right? And, and and again, share your journey in terms of, uh, you know, often we we're talking about it, even prior to that decision, I'm going to college, period, let alone mm -hmm. I want to pursue a PhD. Yeah, absolutely. I um, grew up in a small town in Minnesota along the Mississippi River, five minutes from La Crosse, Wisconsin, to give you perspective. And for me, it was always, I was always planning on going to college. I was really excited about science um, and healthcare. I was planning to go pre-med at the time. ER was my favorite show in the 90s. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> and I had a chemistry teacher in my high school, um, junior, junior chemistry, that um, she really took the time to help me through um, parts of chemistry. Learned I'm good at biology, but chemistry is maybe why I'm not a medical doctor now. <laughs> um, but she spent time and helped me break it down and work through it and showed me different ways, not just to go to medical school, but other ways I could um, explore chemistry or science in other careers as well. And um, so she was a big influencer for me in high school. And preparing to go forward into college. Thank God for those teachers who are willing to invest, right? Right, right. yeah. <laughs> I have to ask you, just out of curiosity, what was it like growing up on the Mississippi? It's such an iconic kind of water. Uh, it was wonderful. Um, my parents, I mean, everyone I grew up with had a boat of some sort. Sure. And so my mm -hmm. parents had a boat and we um, would spend our weekends just um, finding little piece of sand along the uh, wow. Mississippi yeah. and um, playing for the day um, or camping out sometimes. So, so your undergraduate degree, tell mm -hmm. us a little bit about where, what did you study, and yeah. experiences during that, that period of time? So I went to the University of Wisconsin Green Bay um, and I was a human bio major with a chemistry minor and again planning to go to medical school um, and so that's early on why I chose that major. And I think maybe towards my junior, early senior year, I was like, okay, I don't know that medical school is happening. Um, and I didn't really know what direction to take that. Um, and I had been involved as an RA um, my entire time uh, in undergrad. And a mentor of mine at Green Bay was like, well, you know, you could go and get a master's in student affairs um, and work as a hall director. And then there's all these other career options beyond that. And so that's what I decided to do. And that's what led me to the University of Utah. And that had to be a big change, I would expect, moving from the upper Midwest to, to Utah. Yeah, yeah. It was kind of my goal um, in going to grad school. I was like, I really want to get out of the Midwest uh -huh. for a little yeah. bit. Uh -huh. um, and Utah stood out for me, A, because the Olympics had been there just a few years ago. Yeah. So I was and always excited to watch the Olympics. Um, 
And it was about as far away um, from the Midwest as I got into for grad school. Yeah, it's funny because I actually went to the Midwest for graduate school. I yeah. was an East Coaster. I ended <laughs> yeah. up in Indiana for my PhD. So, so um, now did Utah afford you opportunities? I, you know, in reading your bio, and I see that you love to run and cycle and mm-hmm. all these things. So, yeah, the, the great big western skies and the mountains and trails etc so yeah i loved living in the salt lake valley um we had the ski resorts were 20 minutes away from campus um we had a bus that would come through housing um and go directly up to ski resorts so it would take students um all the time you could ski in the af- in the morning and go to class in the afternoon. Um, it doesn't get better than that. Yeah. <laughs> it was a good situation. Um, and, and running and uh, biking were huge, um, especially if you like to bike up and down um, canyons. It's um, plenty of options and cool bike routes through, through there. Um, I ran the Salt Lake Marathon. I ran, like, there was a extreme cross-country race down in Moab that I ran. It was a 10-mile race, I think, but ended up being closer to 13. But yeah, such cool opportunities for outdoor activity and um, all sorts of um, different kinds of sports in the area. It's Um, a beautiful state. Yeah, I I thoroughly enjoyed my time there. Tell us about the academic part. I've I've stolen some of your time for all all the outdoor adventures, but Uh so you're pursuing a master's degree in in what what we here would call SAHI, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, so tell us more about that. Yeah, at Utah, it was um, a master's in educational leadership and policy with an emphasis in student affairs. Mm -hmm. It was a two-year program really to um, help us learn how to support students through through undergrad and as they m- move through through their degrees. So some of our classes were around how the university works um, and finance and law. And then other classes were around um, like counseling skills and how to support students in those like tough moments sure. um, in housing or um, just being an undergrad, which, you know, there's plenty of opportunity yeah. to... <laughs> Um, work through things um, in undergrad. And then um, also some classes in diversity and social justice so that we were equipped with um, the skills to sort of have those tough conversations as students are um, learning to navigate different issues and being out of their parents' houses for the first time and interacting with all sorts of people. You're here. What fun. Yeah. So you complete this degree now, again, if I'm remembering your CV right, you mm-hmm. worked for a while. Mm-hmm. Okay, so t- tell us again yeah, about Yeah, so in our field, it's really, um, before you get a PhD, it's really helpful to have some um, like full-time work experience in, in the field. And so I graduated with my master's. I was in love with Utah and didn't want to move at that point. And so I was looking for um, positions outside of housing my Graduate assistantship was in um, housing and residential education. Um, And so I kind of pivoted and became an academic advisor. Um, And I was an academic advisor in the School of Business, where 
I advised um, mostly finance students, but then also worked with our honors program within the business school. And so we would take honors students and introduce them to all the majors by um, going on company visits and getting having them interact and figure out what do you actually do with an operations management degree? What do you do with an accounting degree? And um, like what sort of like maybe you need an undergrad degree, but also what um, certifications do you also need to be successful in those positions? So it was a really cool opportunity to, for me, get to know students and then learn, um, like we went all over the United States and then at the end of the year would um, go to on an international trip to introduce the students wow. to different business opportunities. Awesome. What it, were some yeah. of those destinations? Uh, we The first year we went to Tokyo and Kyoto in oh, Japan. Wow. Um, then the next two years we um, to various places in Europe. So like Munich, Germany, we had alumni at... Amer Sports, which oversees um, Wilson Sports and um, Sunto Watches mm-hmm. and Solomon Skis. Yeah, yeah. And wow. um, so that it's cool. the parent yeah, company yeah. over that. Yeah. Um, so Munich is their European headquarters and their North American headquarters is in Utah. Um, so that's how we were connected. Connection. Yeah. Cool. Um, and we've been to London and Paris and Bruges and some other places. Yeah. Talk to us a little bit about the the challenges, if I can use this word, and it may not be the right one, but of, mm-hmm. of shepherding students on international <laughs> trips. Like um, well, so the biggest challenge is that um, they're freshmen um, or an, at the end of their freshman year, so 18, 19 year olds, um, and we take them to Europe, and they're suddenly of of drinking age, uh, and so yeah. helping them make smart decisions while they have, because they had um, free time and could go do whatever they wanted, but we needed them to be able to show up um, and not be too miserable while we're meeting the com- the companies that right. are taking the time to um, interact with them. <laughs> so how long did you do this for? I did that for um, four years. And somewhere during that four-year period, the light bulb began to go on or, mm-hmm. or somebody was planting seeds or a little bit of both about, okay, so yeah. there's this PhD thing that's, <laughs> that's waiting out there. So talk to us a little bit about yeah, that. Yeah, I think um, in my role as an academic advisor, I realized that, I mean, I got involved in the business school and helping do some curriculum planning um, for this program, um, doing some kind of market research for uh, this honors program and how we can bring in um, students that are well-suited for the program, and just getting connected with faculty and wanting to know how to better serve their students. And so they would use me to help um, do some research around what are better ways that we can connect students to business um, as undergrads. And as I got more involved in that in that research and um, curriculum stuff, I was like, I really like this part of my job. I love working with students, but I'm really enjoying the more, instead of just telling students what classes to take, but actually thinking holistically about what their experience on campus looks like. And so as, as I got more into that, I was like, you know, a PhD and maybe um, having 
the skill set and teaching and doing more rigorous research is really where I would like to go with this. And a lot of the faculty there in the business school um, supported me in like writing letters, helping me get research experience that I could talk about in my PhD application, um, sort of just whatever I needed to look good on an application as I was applying for a PhD program. So. That's great. Mm-hmm. Now we're going to talk about your PhD journey in a minute, but mm-hmm. I, I do want to spend just a moment because you know academic success coordinators as we call them here at CSU or advisors mm-hmm. are so important yeah. yeah and again they can be easily overlooked I, th- I think for mm-hmm. John Q public they you know even be on the radar screen in some ways right and yeah. so I guess part of this is a word of thanks for being willing to do that because you know I often think of our academic advisors like Atlas with you know the whole world on their shoulders in some ways right yeah. because mm-hmm. You sit at this interface of the institution, and that can trickle down to individual departments or academic units, yep. and then the students that we're here to serve. Yeah, you guys are right on the front line. Uh-huh. So, tell us again a little bit about how that experience was was particularly formative for you as an educator. Yeah, I think for me, um, like becoming an academic advisor, I was I didn't really have an academic advisor in my undergrad. It's not um, Green Bay was a smaller school, and they just didn't have that kind of structure. It was more faculty would advise you on what to take as you moved through. Um, And so when I became an academic advisor, I was like, oh, do you know how much this would have helped me if I had this as an undergrad? Um, And so really approached um, like my strategy in working with students as like, this is the advice that I wish I had as a student. And also like, what are the things that you need to know? How can I connect you to your institution, help you think more broadly about like the experiences that you're getting on campus that fit your major and interests and then you're um, a little more prepared as you're looking for jobs and stuff like that. And in that position, as you're right, you're kind of in the middle um, between faculty and what the university wants, but also helping students. And so it was interesting to learn, like, what are the frustrations on the faculty side when they're interacting with students or what what is making their lives maybe difficult within the classroom in maybe it's not um, getting content material across in in certain ways or ways that students are understanding. And so looking at like communicating to them what I'm hearing from students sure. mm-hmm. in ways that like they're willing to listen mm-hmm. and take feedback on. And then also like from giving tips to students and be like, here are better strategies when you're in that classroom of what to do and stuff like that. Yeah. And I imagine that it was not infrequent for you to be counseling them on, on how do I even go talk to that professor? Yeah. Right. Because yeah. there can be some, Sometimes probably well-earned, you know, reputational pieces of, you know, the cantankerous old professor. But often it's none of that's even there. It's just the idea of, you know, it's one thing to be in a classroom Mm -hmm. of 100 other people, but to go knock on their office door, right, is... So I think equipping students to be able to do that is an important role as well. Uh-huh. I mean, even like some students will be like, what do I call them? Like, because in the business school, a lot of times they don't necessarily have a PhD. They're um, coming from the field and coming right. in. And so mm-hmm. do I call them professor or doctor? And I'm like just talking them through that. <laughs> yeah. Just the smallest pieces that you wouldn't really think about. That. Yeah. It's so important. Yeah. So your PhD training, uh-huh. did, did you... Uh, seek out a particular mentor or was it the program first and mentor second? How did that, that work? And um, 
it was kind of the same, one in the same. Um, so one of my mentors during my master's um, was still around. I went to Utah, so I didn't change um, universities from my master's to my PhD. And so one of my main mentors during the master's program was like, you know, I'm happy to write a letter for you or support you or speak well during like when they're deciding who's getting admitted. Um, And she was really good at talking it up while I was in and finishing my master's and like planting the seed um, for for later. Mm -hmm. And you know, for me, I was like, when I knew it wasn't, I wasn't going to be a medical doctor, I kind of let go of that more advanced degree or that dream. Mm-hmm. Um, and so hearing her say, hey, I really think you could do this was really motivating for me or helped in my imposter syndrome in not in feeling like I even had a chance to apply to a PhD program. And so that was really crucial and important to me. And then helping me like go through the application process, I owe it to her is why I why I got in. So oh, that's, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. And so four years or so? Uh, it was about six. Um, My first year I was going part-time. I was still trying to be an academic advisor and a PhD student. And like with that program, we were traveling all the time. And so at the end of the year, I was like, you know, I as much fun as those trips are, I really am not able to spend the time that I want to in my PhD. And so at that moment, my mentor from my master's was like, Hey, I think I've got funding opportunities for you right now. Perfect time. Yeah. If <laughs> if you really are serious about leaving your job, and so I was able to make that move and had a graduate assistantship immediately. And the first one was um, doing working for the assessment office in student affairs, and then from there I started working with who ended up being my advisor um, in doing research and helping her with her grant funding and. So stuff like that. Cool. Mm-hmm. So tell us more about the work you did for your dissertation. Yeah. Um, so my dissertation, I developed a scale that measures trans inclusivity of student affairs staff and academic advisors in their um roles working with trans students. And so it measures trans-inclusive attitudes, knowledge, and behavior, and how that may show up or indicate inclusive practices or a safer place for trans students to go to get help. For me, I was originally motivated in trying to understand policies around when students are able to change their name or gender on their ID or in their student records. And what I was finding was that there really wasn't any too many policies. I think at the time in 2015, there was maybe three or four schools that had any real policy on the books. And so it became like, okay, so if there isn't a policy, what are those motivating factors for someone to help a trans student trying to navigate that? Um, which led me to then build this instrument that's capable of understanding more of what's going on. Now, does the instrument ask students to talk about the professionals? Is it a self-report from the professionals? How, how does it it's a self-report, um, and so that that is one of the limitations of the survey. I think my goal, in, in like long-term goal with this, would be 
to make a similar instrument from the student's perspective sure. mm. to see how they match up and where maybe discrepancies or things that aren't coming through as good practices to these trans students who are navigating the institution. You know, part of this messiness that we began our conversation with is that all mm. of us, of course, have these blind spots. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes it's willful, again, admittedly, but often it's just, yeah. wow. Don't know. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. yeah. So uh, you, you complete your PhD at the University of Utah, mm-hmm. then what happened? Then, um, <laughs> well, so I had my interview here two weeks before I defended my dissertation. Oh, wow. Wow. Um, so I feel like after I gave my job talk here, I was like, yeah, what is my committee got? I, got, I can definitely do this. <laughs> um, and so um, had the interview already and um, su- successfully defended the dissertation. And then it was kind of a waiting game for a little bit to hear back. It was um, when there was a president search going on oh, sure. here. Yeah. And so the process was slowed down again a bit. Mm-hmm. But then I finally got the offer and... Yay was one of, I feel like very lucky in that I was a doc student graduating and had a faculty position lined up, which is not common. Um, So was, um, yeah, very excited to come here for a tenure track position. And for our listeners, you started when exactly at CSU? I started fall of 2019. Fall of 2019. And again, for the astute listeners, that the, was we the had last no semester idea. of the before exactly. times. Yes. <laughs> uh, so your very first year, you run into the, the campus shutdown, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, shelter in place orders, yeah. and, et cetera. <laughs> and so, you, you know, and I think about this often. Uh, but I, I can't really imagine because, you know, I think back to 1997 when I first started here, <laughs> the woes were the normal ones. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Th- this was just really unprecedented. And so mm-hmm. talk about your first few years at CSU. And, and I really do invite you to do both highs and lows as you feel inspired. Yeah. You know, that first year was a whirlwind in a lot of ways. I um also, upon graduating, um, had a child, um, and so we moved here with a two-month-old, um, wow. and so I was starting my faculty position um, with a newborn at home and trying to navigate that while also trying to like figure out how to do this faculty position I landed. And so like my first semester, I, I was teaching one class. And so I re- felt like I was, you know, starting to get things. I was sleeping a bit more, <laughs> um, <laughs> starting to get things um at least sort of figured out, like at least knew how to, like what parking lots were the best places to park. And (laughs) And that's um, an important piece. You're right. Finding the things I needed. Um, And I I dare say I was hitting a groove in the spring semester and then suddenly, you know, the world shut down. Um, I I remember I had my very first um, meeting with the tenure and promotion committee the Friday before spring break, and that was the day things were shutting down. So we were gathering in this room going, I don't know if it's safe for us to be in here, but we got to do this meeting and then it's spring break. So let's do it and get out of here. Um, And just the eerie um, feeling, I was like, oh, maybe I should stop by and get some groceries on the way home. And just the, the mad rush in the grocery stores, I think that's when it hit me that something bad was happening or something big sure, was happening. Sure. Right. 
and yeah, just um, understanding how to like support our students through this time, I think. I mean, on one hand, it was good because our program is an online program anyways. Mm-hmm. And so we were we didn't have to pivot. We were already up and running on on Zoom and knew how to function on that. <laughs> uh, my, I had slides prepared as if I was doing that on Zoom anyways. Yeah, so head of the game a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> on that front, I was good. Um, but what became very apparent very quickly is that, you know, our students are at the front lines of either Colorado State or at their institution because they are scattered across the country. And some of our students were in housing, having to navigate, like just taking care of the residents in housing, um, but also staying safe and not knowing like what's going on. Are they going to get sick? Like we didn't know much at like that time, Um, even like how it was transmitted. Um, And so like teaching really became a space for, okay, how do we process what's happening? Like just in our field right now with with COVID. How are we responding? What What's happening um, at one institution may be a different issue at another institution. One of the cool things about our program with students scatter, scattered all over the country is that they have different institutional contexts. And so when we come together in the classroom, we can almost brainstorm at um, different ways to approach a problem um, based on like Oh, student, one university did it this way and another student um, at a university did it another way. And so um, kind of used that space at the time to just be a resource in um, like navigating like what the crap is going on in this, yes. you know, yeah. um, and, and using that as a space to also give students time to vent and process what's happening in their jobs right now. Right. Because um, it was it was wild. <laughs> So, so you're, you just wrapped up your fourth year. Mm-hmm. Talk to us a little bit about, we use this term very loosely, a day in the life, because you know, like people are, you know, cookie cutter doesn't apply to one day at work versus the next, right? Mm-hmm. But, you know, as you think about your, your role as a mentor, teacher, scholar, what, what the warp and woof of a typical day for <laughs> Carrie and your collaborators, what does that look like? Um, I would say I think a typical day is use Tuesdays as an example this semester. Um, nice thing is that every day kind of has its own groove to it, um, which is what I something I appreciate. But Tuesdays, so our classes are in the evenings, so I teach at either five or seven at night. Some of our students are on the East Coast taking classes at seven Mountain Time and nine p.m. Wow. <laughs> Eastern Time. Yeah. Um, and so I don't teach until later in the day. So I use that, um, the, the day to like, I start out in the morning, maybe bike or go for a run, um, occasionally sneak away to ski when it, um, works out to get away (laughs) from the mountains. (laughs) And then by late morning, um, I come to campus Tuesdays. We have, there's usually a faculty lunch between the adult education and training folks. And then HEL, um, folks have been getting together for lunch. So a nice time to interact with colleagues. And then I spend my afternoon either in research meetings or meeting with my advisees or students in my class. I've had 
for students that are working on dissertation proposals and Good, dissertation yeah. this spring. And so that's been fun, and but also busy in yes, um, yes. talking them through sort of the anxieties about doing the, their own research and if they're doing this right and all of that. So um, yeah, I um, would structure meetings on Tuesdays with them and then head home around four and take my dog for a walk, relax, eat some food, and then I teach class at, at seven. Um, and so that's that's kind of how my Tuesdays went. Yeah, it's a good day in the life right <laughs> there. Yeah, yeah. yeah broke it down. Now, as we think about your scholarship, talk to our listeners about who has or who are prospective funders of the kind of work that mm-hmm. you do. And if you can, interject a little bit about the, the national panel that you served on. Yeah, well. absolutely. Um, right now, I would say main funders, um, Spencer is a big funder of higher ed research. Um, my colleague, Dr. Munoz, has mm-hmm. a Spencer grant right now. I was just part of one that we submitted um, or that we've proposed um, back in April. And so hopefully by the end of the summer, should hear something here, here. on that. Um, yeah. It's cool research, so I'm hoping that we get to do it. Um, and then other funders tend to be um, uh, the Ford Foundation, um, sometimes NSF or NIH, depending on what part of education is in that in those fields. Um, something that I've been able to get involved with through NASM, which is the National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine. They are a non profit, I believe, but speak to NIH and NSF um, and are a body of scholars related to these fields um, that also guide practices within NIH and NSF. Um, And so what they were working on, started working on about two years ago, was guidelines around how do we measure gender in specifically in the medical fields, um, but in science or survey research in general. And they invited, um, they had several sociologists um, who do gender research involved in the actual development of that document. And then they brought on scholars who also do gender research to edit and provide feedback of that document. Um, And so I was invited as one of the scholars to provide feedback and um, take a look at early drafts of this this document that they released. And for me, it was really exciting because who was actually developing that um, document were people that I go to to cite and and I do what I do in my research. So I, I knew that they were at least tapping into the right at right um, areas um, or people from my perspective who really think critically about like how do we measure gender in open and inclusive ways. Um, and so I got to provide a bit bit of feedback um, and see how it was developed and um, continue to be a part of that editing process. And now it's been released. And so it's used as hopefully um, guiding um, hospitals and other entities associated with the medical field in terms of like, how do we just capture this data better and then therefore serve not just trans people better, but really everyone. Right. being being seen and being recognized in the the medical field. 
What a That's unique incredible. experience. Yeah. Right? I mean, so early in your career as well. Yeah, yeah. super cool. And yeah, I was um, excited that I was thought of as Indeed. someone to go mm -hmm. to um, for this work. So I thought it was really cool. That's great. Mm -hmm. You talk about four PhD students that you're here mentoring uh -huh. this spring. We uh -huh. want to think a little bit about legacies. Uh -huh. and so if you were to cast your eyes 5, 10, 20 years into the future, <laughs> you think about the kind of legacy you want to leave. And, mm -hmm. and again, I, I think first here on the students, there, there's the department, the institution as mm -hmm. well, but I think that's in the background. It's, it's what kind of fingerprints do we want to leave on our, <laughs> on our students that we have the opportunity to work with. So talk to us a little bit about that. Like the legacy I want to leave or for my students? Yes. Mm -hmm. I think for me, I I want my students to to do the research that is most exciting to them. I teach quant. Um, and and in my field, quant, or at least in our pro a lot of our programs, quant is not our students' favorite um, mm -hmm. subject. It's yeah. um we're much stronger on the qualitative side. And so my goal has been to convince and show students that there are actually really good ways that they can leverage quant skills within their research. Um, and, and so some of that is, you know, I take up my, my counseling skills um, that I learned in my master's um, <laughs> to help work through fears of math and the anxieties around quantitative methods and doing that kind of research. Um, and so I want to show them that, you know, there's, it's not just, oh, I, I do qualitative research and that's the only thing I'm going to do. I want them to have the skills that are gonna allow them to collect the best data to answer their research questions. And so sometimes that's qualitative and sometimes that's quant and sometimes that's mixed. And I think for me, I want them to be prepared to, to have conversations with um, the upper administration of their university or policymakers and people involved with providing funding for universities or other things and be able to show in numbers if that's what's needed mm -hmm. um, what is happening and how who's being served or um, where are areas that maybe need more attention by the university or a different policy or whatnot um, to move forward. And so I think, you know, we we have a lot of g really good critical qualitative stories around students. Mm -hmm. um, and that, that definitely shapes people's ideas of what, what the problem is. And then, but also we, you know, people at the policy level also want to see numbers. And so having those skills is, I think, really important for our students. But then teaching them how to maybe like think about like are we capturing the data the um in the best ways are are we missing students by how we've designed um our demographic variables and stuff like that and just not seeing things because they are essentially non not existing in our data mm -hmm. um and so that's where i really want students to think critically and ask good questions around like what is the data that we want and how, how do we get it for what they need to do? Well said. Yeah. <laughs> so a couple of questions related to this institutional environment in uh -huh. which we, we find ourselves. And, and first of all, the college. And so I'm interested in your reflections on, on what you like best about being a faculty member in the College of Health and Human Sciences. 
I think um, for me, you know, it's weird. Um, this college is a interesting mix of majors or like there's no other one like it. Um, and for me, I like I do gender research and I focus on higher ed, um, but gender is beyond higher ed. Sure. And mm -hmm. so I find that there's different ways to partner um, with different areas and fields um, because I do gender research. Um, and um, with within higher ed, I feel like our program is also set up to help train people to help support the other programs sure. as well. Wow. Um, and so I see a, a bunch of different opportunities for both just for me to partner with other people, but also to help our students or help the programs in this beyond just the college, but um, to help serve the institution and the land grant mission um, together. Well said. And you've <laughs> stolen a march on us. Yes. <laughs> That's the next question. Is uh, you know, again, the land grant mission is really such a powerful thing. And mm -hmm. one of the things I've always liked about CSU is that it's not just sort of lip service. It tends to be centered. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So talk to us about uh, what it's like to, to be an academic at a land grant institution. Yeah, um, this is my first land grant um, institution. I've been at um, Utah's, uh, the flagship, Utah State is the land grant. So um, that wasn't a land grant. Um, and Green Bay is not a land grant either. Um, and so it's been kind of cool to get to know a land grant and see from within um, what a, a land grant is like. Um, and then also think about like what do we what do we learn about land grants? How were land grants started? Because um, mm -hmm. we we get them from the the Morrill Act um, mm -hmm. in 1862 um, is the Morrill Land Grant to expand west for um, the country in in doing so providing incentives for higher education. Um, and, and for me, I see, um, our field, like we are set up to a, tr like I said, train people to, um, help our students through housing, help our students as academic advisors, help train people to support them. And then, and then also to think about, okay, I think like that, that land grant piece around community and reaching out, thinking about it in reverse too. So, um, like, what is um, what does our community look like, and does that reflect? Is that reflected in CSU? And mm. then, and if it's not, how do we support those students to get here and find us? Um, and then also support other institutions in the area. So, like the community colleges in the area and helping them. Um, develop maybe streamline efforts into getting to th this institution once they maybe complete their gen eds or their associate's degree. So I think it ends up being really meta because we're supporting the work that everyone is doing and then also supporting other schools in the area. And I think that doesn't that's not just higher ed. That's also the K-12 side and preparing teachers yeah. and going in to the K-12 areas and helping students from there um, move into Colorado State when they graduate high school as well. Yes, indeed. That access mission is so great, isn't it? <laughs> right. That's awesome. Well, great. Thank yeah. you so much. Thank you for yeah, having me. Greatly appreciate it. It's been great fun, Carrie. Thanks a ton. Yeah. yeah, thank you. Another great interview is in the books. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Health and Human Science Matters. Stay tuned for the next episode. It's on the way. In the meantime, go listen to our episodes from seasons one, two, and three. And if you want to learn more about our CSU College of Health and Human Sciences, go to www.chhs.colostate.edu.